The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Anxiety Bites Podcast, and I am your host, Jen Kirkman. Well, this is my first episode. So I think I'll just talk off the cuff, off the top of my head for a few minutes to just let you know what we're doing here with this podcast. Anxiety Bites is a little Generation X nod to the movie Reality Bites, but there is nothing bite-sized about this podcast. I'll be having long conversations with all kinds of experts who can help us understand our anxiety, where it comes from, what we can do about it. Whether it's a neuroscientist, a psychiatrist, an author, a researcher, a meditator, an artist, anybody who has experienced anxiety or who works in the field of helping others cope with anxiety. Now, I don't want to make this podcast about me because it's not about me. It's about everybody. It's about anxiety. But a little background on me. I am, in my other life, a comedian. I have comedy specials on Netflix. I'm also a TV writer. And I've been working in entertainment for about 25 years. But something happened during the great lockdown of 2020, where I was no longer on tour, I wasn't on stage, and I was fine with it. 
But I wanted to use my voice somehow, maybe in a way that just didn't distract people with jokes, but maybe helped people. And I was noticing on social media that a lot of people were discovering that they had anxiety for the first time or they were actually just becoming an anxious person for the first time. And I realized, hey, you know, I actually feel pretty good. I have had generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, multiple phobias since I was eight years old. And none of it was diagnosed or handled properly until I was 22. But as a kid, I sat around having panic attacks in school. I remember at age 12 thinking I was having a heart attack. But there was also a part of me that knew this has to do with mental health, even though I had never heard the expression mental health. But I knew, or I thought I knew, if I tell people what I'm feeling, if I tell people that I feel like I can't breathe and I feel like I'm going crazy, they will lock me up for life in a padded room and I'm not ready for that yet. And so I just had a grand plan, which was whatever this is going on inside of me that seems to be getting worse every year, I will just ride it out until it gets so bad that I want to live in a padded room. And that is how I will deal with this thing. I never had to go live in a padded room because I got help. Ironically, there is padding in the room I am in right now, but that is just because it makes the podcast sound better. But I began therapy in my early 20s. I've done it all from therapy to medication to meditation. And I'm telling you, everything I have tried to help my anxiety has worked. But different things work at different times. But the one thing that really tipped me over the edge into being able to say, I no longer have a phobia of flying, of driving alone on the freeway, of getting in subways. I still have a fear of heights. What helps my circular thinking, my rumination, all of the thought processes that are anxiety, what helped was when I realized I can apply the sense of humor I have in my job to my anxiety. I used to take anxiety so seriously and say things, I suffer from anxiety. I, I just thought it was this scary, terrible thing. And I, I gave it so much weight, you know? I almost gave it so much respect in a way. And now I try to laugh about my anxiety. You know, I don't say I suffer from anxiety. I say I have a friend called anxiety and it loves to get in the passenger seat of my car and try to give me suggestions about terrible things I should think about. And I just don't let anxiety weigh in on any decisions I'm making. But it's allowed to be there if it needs to be there. You know, I learned to live with it, but it is not anything like it used to be. And it doesn't control my decisions or my life. I know that might not sound appealing to people. I think people want to just get rid of anxiety, but it, it feels like I've gotten rid of it, if that makes sense, by accepting it and poking a little fun at it. And so I want to have honest conversations with people. I don't want to come from some lofty place of, you know, peace and love and I'm whispering and, you know, I've changed my life. I still swear and, and, and yell fuck you at people if I'm <laughs> driving in a bad mood. This is real people talking. This is not self-help. This is not wellness. This is not anything unrelatable. Unless you don't have anxiety, then, you know, congrats, you won't relate. But yeah, during the lockdown, I was noticing people on social media and I thought, wait, why don't they just type anxiety into the internet? Like, like this thing I wished I'd been able to do so many years ago. And I realized people don't know where to start. Some people don't even know if they're allowed to claim that it's anxiety because 
they don't know what it is. And, and doesn't a doctor have to tell them they have it? And, oh, well, maybe I'm just stressed or it's the state of the world or, you know, once this goes away, I'll be, be better. And, and so I started teaching breathing classes over Zoom for fun. And I wrote a newsletter about anxiety. And when the response was, frankly, more overwhelming than the response to my last tour as a comedian, I realized, I think I have something here. And so I pitched this podcast idea to iHeartRadio. They said, yes, so here we are together now. And I actually thought at one point, oh, I hope, um, I hope everyone still wants to talk about anxiety by the time this podcast comes out. I had no idea that it would be the next epidemic. Anyway, I hope you enjoy Anxiety Bites. There will be new episodes every week. And I'm sure over the course of the episodes, I'll reveal more and more about my personal experiences with anxiety. But you don't need the whole story right now. And it's, frankly, again, it's not about me. It's about all of us. And it's about anxiety. And it's about not feeling so alone. Because that was always the worst part of it for me, was that I felt so alone when I had it. And even after I found out what I had was normal, I still felt alone because not a lot of people were talking about it. So let's talk about it. Anxiety bites, but you're in control. And now let's talk to our guest. Today on Anxiety Bites, I am talking to Dr. Judd Brewer. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He's a neuroscientist. He's the director of research and innovation at the Mindfulness Center and associate professor in behavioral and social sciences at the School of Public Health and Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at Brown University, as well as a research affiliate at MIT. He's wicked smart, you guys. His latest book is called Unwinding Anxiety, a clinically proven step-by-step plan to break the cycle of worry and fear that drives anxiety and addictive habits. So in this book, Dr. Judd is basically saying anxiety is a habit and we can approach treating it the way we might approach quitting smoking. Dr. Judd's 2017 book was called Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and how we can break bad habits. Dr. Judd has done a ton of TED Talks. He's written articles. All of the places that you can find him will be linked in the show notes. And he's also the creator of the Unwinding Anxiety app. It's a step-by-step program for your smartphone or tablet. It helps you uncover your triggers, break the cycle of worry and panic, identify your anxiety habits, and learn specific anti-anxiety tools. So I've been a fan of Dr. Judd for a while now. I've just heard him on other podcasts and I've read his books. And the way he approaches anxiety is something that we do have control over and that in a weird way, the way we've been habitually having anxiety, weirdly, there's a little bit of a reward system there, even though it's a disordered reward. We're getting something out of worrying. And so we have to change that and replace it with something. So it's not easy. And I think a lot of people don't want to look at it that way because you want to think, no, I I don't have any control. Anxiety is just something that's happening to me. And yet, isn't that what all of us anxious people want is control? I think we want control over the world and other people's actions. But when we're told, oh, well, you have control over your own actions, we're like, no, I didn't want, that's not a fun kind of control though. (laughs) Anyway, in my interview with Dr. Judd, I talked to him about his personal experience with anxiety that he actually thought was IBS, how he gets anxious about his patients who have anxiety, and what he's learned over the past 25 years 
studying the mind and how anxiety is driven. And we talk about why his dream for his app, Unwinding Anxiety, is that people eventually unsubscribe from it. So let's talk to your new favorite person, Dr. Judd. Dr. Judd Brewer, thank you for being on Anxiety Bites. I'm going to ask you, what is your past relationship to anxiety and what's your current relationship to anxiety today? I'd be happy to, <laughs> to explore my relationship with anxiety. You know, <laughs> it started way back in the day. Uh, actually, I didn't even know I had anxiety in college. I remember uh, yeah. having, let's just say, some GI issues. You know, I talk a little bit about this at the end of my book. And I thought, you know. Your new book, Unwinding yes, Anxiety. Yes, is that right? in that book. Yes. And I, you know, done a bunch of backpacking in college and was also, you know, always concerned about, you know, getting bacterial infections from not, you know, carefully uh, filtering my water. And so my senior year, I remember going to the student health uh, and, and the doctor there, you know, these GI issues. And he said, oh, could you be stressed out? And <laughs> I was like, no, not me. I'm not stressed. I play the violin. I run. I'm a vegetarian, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so long story short, it turned out that I had irritable bowel syndrome, which is totally stress and anxiety related. And so, <laughs> so that was my first uh, encounter, let's say, with anxiety, not even knowing it. Uh, and so I think, you know, I think anxiety can really be a shapeshifter in, in many ways. Uh, long story short, I went on to get panic attacks uh, during residency and, you know, in, in my psychiatry residency, which was really fun because then, you know, after I'd have a panic attack, I could go down the diagnostic checklist and be like, check, 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 check. Yeah, I just had a panic attack, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and And today I would say, you know, a lot of what I've learned about my own mind has helped me work with anxiety. I certainly get sensations and feelings that come up. But it's I'm much more able to manage and work with it, and um, I, I, you know, I jokingly say, well, you know, I uh, I wrote this book because I was anxious about how to help my patients with anxiety because you know what I learned in medical school and residency was to prescribe medications, and the gold standard medications out there. There's this term in medicine called number needed to treat, which gives us a quick and dirty estimate of how well something works. So the higher yeah. the number, the worse it is. So with medications. That number needed to treat is 5.2, meaning you have to treat five patients before one person shows a significant reduction in symptoms. So you can imagine for five patients come into my office in one day, I don't know which of those five is going to benefit. So I'm basically playing the medication lottery with them. And I don't yeah. know what I'm going to do with the other 80%. So I'm getting anxious about how to help my patients with anxiety. <laughs> so those that's that's my, you know, my previous and, and I guess current relationship is I've been blown away with what I've learned about my own mind. So I started meditating at the beginning of medical school, first day of medical school. And over the last 25 years, have learned so much about how my mind works and all these twists and turns and serendipity around how anxiety can be driven, uh, that that's where we started developing programs. And then as a researcher, testing them to see how well they can work. And mm -hmm. long story short, that's why I wrote this Unwinding Anxiety book was to make it accessible, make these, these tools accessible to anyone. Man, I wish you'd been around when I was a teenager with anxiety and no internet and didn't know what it was and was afraid to ask the librarian if they had any books about the brain because I thought she was going to say, oh, I have to call the hospital and you're going to have to live there the rest of your life. Are you perhaps anxious? That's very right. bad, you know? Yeah. Can you hold for one minute, <laughs> so please? And then she starts whispering. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, 
Okay, so let me get into this. And I want to talk about, obviously, your book and your app. But I have a question about the brain, because you are also a neuroscientist. Is that right? Yes. Okay. First of all, when the hell are our brains going to evolve past this? Because if I hear one more time, oh, it's left over from being a caveman. Well, okay. Uh, but when? When will this change? <laughs> when will this default setting to being anxious and overreacting, you know, when? In our lifetime? No. Well, no, right? In, from a genetic perspective, not in our lifetime. Yeah. From a functional perspective, I think it can happen, uh, you know, this evolutionary process can happen pretty quickly. So you can look at to see how quickly we have learned to use technology as a way to leverage attention, right? So that happened pretty darn quickly, you know, within, you know, okay. 1800s, uh, there were, you know, first researchers showing that animals could learn how to get out of cages by you know, getting a food reward. So that was, you know, late 1800s, that was 120 years ago. And now you can look at social media and how they are totally getting us all addicted to those things. So this process has been understood and people have adapted it to capture our attention. And this has mm -hmm. also driven our anxiety. And so the, as soon as we learn how that works, you know, the way I think of it is if we can learn how our minds work, then we can uh, start to work with our minds. And so in that sense, just like, you know, it's capturing our attention, it's capturing our the uncertainty, you know, around, um, I think of it this way, the only certain thing is that there's always going to be uncertainty. So that's not actually something that we want to evolve yep. beyond because that helps us survive. But what we can learn is how that uncertainty drives anxiety and that's something that we can learn to work with within months. You know, for example, my lab's done several clinical studies where we got a 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores in anxious physicians using an app. You know, we did a study with generalized anxiety mm. disorder. We got a 67% reduction. And there we could actually calculate that number needed to treat. That thing I mentioned earlier, Ray, for this. So with medications, yeah. it's five. With this study, it was one6 so, so it only takes 1.6 people doing this kind of uh, mindful thought behavioral work around anxiety to see a result. Yes. Is that what you mean? Yes. That's great. When I first found out 20 years ago when I went to therapy for panic and it was explained to me that it's just my adrenaline kind of freaking out and it's this leftover thing from, you know, my brain just trying to protect me. That that was of great comfort. But I know for some people that it can seem like, oh, great. Well, now it can't be fixed. But like a lot of things, we we can actually change our mind, literally. Literally, we can. And I think one thing that I see that, that gets conflated or, or mix, mushed together is people conflating the survival piece with the actual anxiety piece. So, if you think of the caveman brain, it was really set up to develop habits, you know, where it's it's about learning where to remember food is and, and also how to avoid danger. On top of that's been layered the neocortex, literally the new brain, which helps us survive in a different way, which is through thinking and planning. And that survival comes based on getting information, like accurate information in the present moment. So we can our brains can basically simulate based on past experience using information that we have. So here, mm. it's about, you know, if we don't have accurate information, 
that's when our brain starts spinning out of control into anxiety. And I th- I want folks to be very, you know, to understand that because it's not just our adrenaline, certainly when we get freaked out, our adrenaline pumps, but it's not that, you know, that fear reaction that happens really quickly, actually faster than we can even think. That's a survival mechanism that helps us learn to avoid danger. That's different than anxiety. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. And yeah, I'm glad you separated that for me too, because I think I've, like you said, anxiety is a shape shifter. And uh, I think sometimes I have conflated that fear instinct with, with anxiety. Yes. So we all have times when we're anxious. And when we, when we worry, for example, that can actually feed back and you know, basically kick in our adrenaline that makes us more anxious. So I, I have a lot of patients in my clinic who, when they go to bed, their head hits the pillow And their brain Mm -hmm. starts thinking, you know, it's like their brain says, okay, it's my turn now. I had a chance to talk. And now it's, we start regretting the things we've done during the day, or we start worrying about the future. And then, and then they look at the clock and they think, I got to get sleep because I got this thing to do tomorrow. And which of course jacks their adrenaline. It makes it much harder for them to sleep. Yeah, right. So now they've just created this kind of thought pattern of now the anxiety is about the sleep. Yeah. We'll be right back. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. 
if you dare. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. What? What's the story on chemical imbalances? I mean, is it just sort of a a thing that people say and it's not really something we're born with or can we change our chemistry in our brain? Well, we can certainly change our chemistry in our brain. You know, thoughts will literally have chemical have chemical cascades that lead to, you know, chemical reactions. So in that sense, we are basically just a jumble of chemistry. If you look at the chemical imbalance thing, I think it's a simple and quick explanation. Oh, take this pill because it's a chemical imbalance and it's going to help with the chemical. For some people, they have genetic polymorphisms, meaning that they're, 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 uh, the proteins that are expressed on certain cells look slightly differently than other people, which can affect uh, how certain neurotransmitters you know, function in their brain. And for some people, you know, things like uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are the first line treatment, like the Prozacs, the Zolofs, the Paxils of the world, yeah. uh, that's how, you know, for some people, those can be helpful. Yet, this is where this number needed to treat comes in. It should be noted that historically, these were developed as antidepressants. And people just started using them, testing them out with anxiety and found, oh, they're better than placebo. So we'll prescribe those as well. Uh -huh. So, you know, they affect serotonin reuptake. That's where their name comes from. But it doesn't necessarily mean, especially for the majority of the population, some chemical imbalance in their brain. It means this is the best we've got. And here's our explanation. So try the pill. And because they're generally benign, you know, they don't have generally don't have side effects for most people. And, and you know, they're, it's hard to overdose on them. For a psychiatrist or even a general, you know, practitioner like a primary care provider to to prescribe these things and not worry about it too much, and there's also you know the added benefit of having a placebo effect. Oh, I'm taking a pill to help my brain, and mm. you know that's not to discount the placebo effect. For some medications, that's the majority of the effect that's happening. And and from you know from my clinical perspective, it's like whatever you know if this is helping and it's not harming, game on. So. In terms of the type of therapist someone should see, right, if, if they're experiencing, let's say, daily anxiety attacks, um, whether it's thoughts, you know, thoughts spiraling or sweaty palms or whatnot, or they're avoiding certain things driving on the freeway, they're, you know, certain places give them panic attacks, you know, all, the whole shebang. And they're looking in a directory and they're looking to find a therapist. Is there something they should be looking for? Because I know that for me, when I was having daily panic attacks, you know, my therapist wanted to go back into childhood, which is great, but wasn't going to help me have some tools to, to bring to the office the next day. Mm -hmm. And I believe in my 
recovery as an anxious person that I need the tools now because I need to just be able to function. And then once I'm better, sure, let's go back to childhood. Let's talk about this. I get it. Um, but what, what do you tell, what would you tell yeah. someone to look for? So as a card carrying psychiatrist who is trained about the whole childhood thing and all that, it wasn't until I became a neuroscientist that I started to realize, you know, neuroscience may play a bigger role here in helping people with anxiety than going back to our childhood. And mm -hmm. that childhood piece may be somewhat of a holdover from, you know, whether it's Freudian days or whatever, you know, in a way that we're just trained, oh, this is what we should be doing. But if you look at it, especially at looking at how anxiety is driven, so this was something I did not learn in residency training. This is something that I learned afterwards serendipitously when I was studying habit change. You know, we were developing programs for smoking and for overeating. And especially with our, we have this Eat Right Now app that we were studying with folks. And folks were saying to me, I remember somebody asking, hey, you know, I'm realizing that anxiety is triggering me to stress eat. Can you create a program for anxiety? And I was thinking, well, I prescribe medications, but, you know, they don't work that well. So it put a bug in my <laughs> ear. And it was actually back in the 80s when Prozac, you know, first came out that people were doing research suggesting that anxiety could be driven like other habits. And this is really what this, you know, I, I had this light bulb moment where I was like, I never learned that. Why didn't I, why didn't I learn that in, in residency? And the reason I mentioned that is that when I started looking into the neuroscience behind how that works, it's like, oh, habits are driven through rewards, not based on childhood. There's actually a, a formula called the Rosgorla-Wagner curve. The, the details aren't important. But basically, mm -hmm. how rewarding a behavior is, is going to drive 100% whether we perpetuate it or not, whether we keep doing it or not. Childhood is nowhere in that equation. You want to change a, a behavior, including worrying, which drives anxiety. It's not about going back into the childhood. It's about what's happening now, what's driving yeah. this, and can we take a neuroscience-based approach? So long, you know, long answer to your short question, whoever it is, make sure that they're actually up on the, the current neuroscience and not just, you know, oh, I, I had uh, Freudian psychoanalysis training or something like that. Nothing wrong with that. Um, mm -hmm. But we know a lot more now than was, uh, was known in Freud's days. But I think it's a, it is a sophisticated concept that, okay, you're doing this habit, this anxiety, whether it's the kind of thought spiraling you're doing before you go on a trip or you're drinking every night to handle the work stress, whatever it is, you're actually getting some kind of reward, however disordered it is from doing this. Let's look at it and get you mm -hmm. a better reward. I mean, first right there, somebody has to be willing to say, for lack of a better word, it's my quote fault. But I feel like that, that must be challenging to, you know, I think there's some comfort in saying, no, 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 I'm not doing anything wrong. Life is happening to me. Now fix it. You know, don't make me yeah. change something. I, I, that must be extremely challenging in your practice, right? It can right? be. And I actually learned something from one of my patients that I've, um, I've used to help my other patients with this exact question that you're asking, which is one of my patients. So as I was working with a patient and helping her understand, like this was basically, you know, her brain trying to help her survive, you know, this thinking and planning brain going offline. She actually started using this mantra uh, with herself when she noticed that she was starting to get revved up with anxiety. She just used this mantra. Oh, that's just my brain. And what that reminded her of 
was mm. that it was her brain doing this thing. It wasn't actually her fault. And it could also help her remind herself, oh, I know how to work with this. So she could ground herself and actually work with it. That's incredible. Yeah, because I do think the irony about anxious people, myself included, is we just want control. Mm -hmm. We want to control the universe. We want to control, you know, everything. And things like your book, Unwinding Anxiety, and working with a therapist, you're actually being given the greatest gifts, control, options, choices. And we're like, (laughs) no, 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 no. I don't, you know, I don't want to, it's just funny. I see that. I saw that so many years in myself, like someone is giving me exactly what I want here. Mm-hmm. You can control this. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it. And so, you know, it's, it's tough. I mean, like it everything is. you're saying in your book makes total sense, but I imagine as the person that has to work with people, it, it might take a beat to get there. Right. It can. And so here I find two things uh, that are common. One is when the anxiety gets bad enough, it's kind of like somebody getting into the gutter with when they're drinking, it becomes bad enough. Then they they wake up and like, wow, this is a problem. I need to do something about this. So when somebody's anxiety is bad enough, they're more driven to find a solution. I hope that we can reach people before that because I hate to see people suffer from debilitating anxiety. The other piece is to really be able to see, oh, you know, this is just my brain and we're giving them these tools, you know, think of it as knowledge is power. And so for anybody mm-hmm. listening, keep in mind, the more you know about how your mind works, the more you'll be able to work with it. And this applies beyond anxiety. So if you're not sure if you have anxiety or not, just think of any habit that you have and this same process uh, can be applied in the same way. And then maybe examine whether you've got a little bit of anxiety and then use it in the same way. And I want to empower everyone listening to be able to claim anxiety. You know, I think so many people think it is this big, bad disorder and, you know, they can't say they have it because, you know, oh, they don't have it as bad as this and that. And it's like, I just think anxiety is sort of the human condition in a way, <laughs> yes. you know. Whether some people experience it often or not. I I like the way you put that. So there is one condition that I, with 100% certainty, can say that we all have, which you just named, the human condition. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah. (laughs) And in that human condition is a whole range of emotions and a whole range of states. And our brains are just, they're just trying to gather information so they can predict the future. And when there's uncertainty, we might get a little anxious And that's okay. And the more we can notice more quickly that we're anxious, the more we can actually get our thinking and planning brain back online and get back on track. So let's talk about how we do some of that. So maybe explain to everyone what's an adaptive versus a maladaptive behavior and how does that get us on the road to learning about changing our habits with anxiety? Well, let's use uh, any habit as an example. So uh, we form habits through a simple process, you know, three elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a result. So an adaptive habit, you can think, I won't use too many examples from our ancient ancestors, because I agree with you. I think that's overplayed. But it's helpful to just kind of conceptualize where this comes from. So imagine our ancient ancestors didn't have refrigerators, right? They didn't have... um, sources of food that they could get every day. They had to go find food. And so the brains are set up and our brains are still set up this way, you know, to uh, go find the food. So the first element is a trigger. They see the food, there's the trigger. They eat the food, there's the behavior. That's the second element. And then the third element is from a neuroscience perspective, a reward where their brain, you know, their stomach sends this dopamine signal to their brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So an adaptive habit 
is to remember where food is. Another adaptive habit in modern day is to, well, think of all the habits that we have that we do every day, like tying our shoes, putting our clothes on, walking, eating breakfast, making breakfast, making coffee. Imagine having to relearn those things every day. You know, we'd be exhausted by the end of breakfast. So the idea there is there are tons of adaptive habits that, that we take for granted because they're habitual. We do them without thinking. That's basically what a habit is. It's an automatic behavior that, that's just cued. So there, you know, we've got habits. Most of our habits are adaptive. And then sometimes they become maladaptive. So based on what we've learned, they, they can not be so helpful. So maybe an example would be, so adaptive habit is learning how to eat. Maladaptive habit would be learning the value of chocolate cake. You know, so we set down this reward value of chocolate cake. Typically, it starts, okay, let's go back to childhood. Are you ready? So <laughs> I'm ready. So we go to birthday parties when we're kids, and we associate mm-hmm. cake with not only tasting good, but ice cream and presents and friends and parties. And for me, did you ever go to a roller skating birthday party? You know, yeah. Oh, you bet funny. I did. So yeah. <laughs> I, I associate that with roller skating sometimes. Um, and so imagine all the times we lay down that reward value as a kid. And then when we're not a kid anymore, you know, when we were kids, we could eat cake for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? It didn't affect us at all. You know, just we're like, boom, I'll, oh yeah, I'll have more cake. Now I get a sugar rush and crash when I eat cake, you know, so I have to eat it very judiciously, Uh you know, and if I ate cake for breakfast, lunch and dinner, things probably wouldn't go so well in terms of my body feeling good and my brain functioning. So uh, we can see how that can become maladaptive if we just carry that habit forward. I'm just going to eat cake the rest of my life. So Mm -hmm. that's where the same behavior can be just fine. And then it becomes maladaptive. So I think of you know, the far end of the habit spectrum is addiction, right? And the simple definition there is like continued use despite adverse consequences. So that can be applied to everything from overeating to smoking, you ready for this, to worrying, right? Because worrying tends to be maladaptive. It just gets us, it gets us all fired up with adrenaline. It doesn't help us solve problems. It actually moves us in the opposite direction because it's harder to think and plan when we're, when we're worrying, uh, yet it's it uh, it becomes rewarding in the sense that even if we can't control the situation, we at least feel like we're doing something. You know, it's like the parent worrying about yeah. their kid. Oh, I'm like, I don't know if he or she is safe. Well, I'll, I'll just worry about them until they get home. I can promise you their worrying did not keep their kids safe, but it gave them something to yep. do. It's like if you're driving on the freeway, deadlock traffic, and you start taking side streets, it takes the same amount of time but you felt like you were doing something and you still were late to the thing because there were just too many cars on the road that day, you know? And, and I really relate to that, you know, in my days of fear flying, I had maladaptive habits. I had, I had the habit of doing certain thinking, which only increased my anxiety and panic on the flight. And I couldn't let it go because the reward I was getting was that I had convinced myself that I was inherently doing something dangerous and I survived it because I got lucky, you know, when the plane landed safely and that all of my worrying was keeping me in reality. I had this very insistent thing that, listen, nobody bullshit me here. I don't want to hear about everything's okay and blah, blah. I'm going to face reality, you know? I know that wasn't even a question. It was just sort of a rant. And uh. 
Well, I think you're highlighting something that I think it's helpful to know, which is our brains love to make associations, right? One of the biggest ones that I see is performance anxiety, where people feel like, well, I was anxious and I performed well, so therefore anxiety helped me perform well. Wrong, actually, wrong, dead wrong. There's no evidence to support the fact that anxiety makes people perform better. In fact, plenty of research showing that there's an inverse relationship, meaning the more anxious someone is, the worse they perform. Now, I don't know about you when you've performed, Mm -hmm. but uh, the height, the peak of performance is when people talk about being in flow or being in the zone. And how much anxiety is happening in those moments? Zero. Yes. And you know, it's interesting you said that. I just figured it out now because I'm not... uh, Honest to God, as a performer, I really am not like this big attention-starved person. And so I used to think, well, why the only place I'm not anxious is on stage? And it wasn't because I love the crowd and the applause. It's not that. It's what you're yeah. saying. I was in flow. Um, and, and yeah, you can't really be anxious when you're, I, I don't know the bad word for that is happy. It's not happy, but when you're uh, focused, what, what know, is f- the, another the way, way to say I think flow? of this and, uh, is, you know, in the way that Mihai Csikszentmihalyi was the psychologist that termed you know, the coin, the term flow is that we're out of our, we're outside of ourselves. We're merged with it. You know, it's like action and events are merged into one where we lose all sense of who we are. We lose a sense of self. So he describes this as effortless. It's selfless. It's joyful. It's timeless. All these things that you talked about. And if you think of anxiety, so anxiety makes, feels closed down. It feels contracted flow feels such the opposite, so expanded that you can think of anxiety says, okay, here I am because I'm feeling anxious. When we've expanded that to infinity, we lose a sense of where we end and where the rest of the world begins. And in fact, this is where my lab has done some research, some neuroscience research on this, where there's a part of the brain called the uh, default mode network, which is involved in self-referential processing. Basically, when we're thinking about ourselves, it gets activated and it gets really active. You said that's a, called the de- default yeah, mode network? Yeah, it's called network. the default mode network because it okay. is what we default to <laughs> when we're not mm. doing anything else. Yeah. In fact, it probably we're, we're defaulting to this about 50% of waking life. Like this is, this is the... Thinking about ourselves and how we feel yeah. and what we think and making our associations and yeah. all that. Okay. Yeah. And so it gets activated when we're craving things, for everything from cocaine to chocolate to gambling. And it gets activated mm-hmm. when we worry. The more we worry, the more it gets activated. Yet, uh, when we, so my lab studied uh, experienced meditators, we find that experienced meditators decrease activity in that default mode network. They're deactivating that network compared to everybody else. And in fact, we've even had folks get into flow while they're in the in our fMRI scanner and we can see their post their default mode network parts of the, the that brain and in particular the posterior cingulate cortex get really quiet when they're in flow. Anxiety bites will continue on the flip side of this message from our sponsors. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. 
Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward, don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This one is just sort of a comment, I guess, but you mentioned fun. You know, I think anxious people forget to yeah. have fun, you know, and and I love, uh, you talk a lot about in your book having a playful attitude, right? So being curious about our thoughts. And like you said, your, your patient who said, oh, that's just my brain. You know, that's sort of the point of one of the underlying points of this podcast is like, we can have some mm-hmm. fun with our self-diagnosed anxiety diagnoses. You know, um, it doesn't have to be, I have anxiety. And so my point is like a little thing I do is I call my anxiety mm-hmm. Lisa. So I used to work at this office and the human resources woman was such a drama queen and she would come to my desk and she would go, <sighs> now, if I ask her what's wrong, yeah. there I go. I'm, yeah. She's off and running. If I pretend I didn't hear her sighing, then she goes away. (laughs) So my anxiety tries to get my attention. Hey, when are you going to die? Hey, you can't sleep tonight. Hey, blah, blah, blah. That's Lisa sighing. I don't have to follow it down its road. I can just go, oh, thanks for weighing in and and move on. Yeah. And you're giving a great example of how 
it, things like mindfulness training, like we use in this Unwinding Anxiety app, can help people get that perspective where if you can see anxiety as thoughts and emotions and body sensations, then you get perspective and you're no longer as identified with it. You know, in physics, they call this mm-hmm. the observer effect. By observing, you're affecting the results. We can do that with our minds by seeing, and I love how you name it, Lisa. You know, it's like, oh, there yeah. goes Lisa again, as compared to, you know, you are locking arms with Lisa and she's, or she's grabbing you and, and dragging you along. It's like, oh, there it is. Oh, there's that thought. There's yeah. that body sensation. And the, oh, that's really where the curiosity comes in. It's like, oh, this is this. So for example, getting really curious when we're anxious, like, oh, there's restlessness, there's tightness, there's heat. Well, is it restlessness that equals anxiety? No, it's just restlessness. Is it heat? Well, no, that's heat. Is it the, you know, is it that burning quality of this rising my chest? Well, that's just burning, rising my chest. So it's not that these are pleasant, mm-hmm. but it helps us see that this big bad concept of that we label anxiety is made up of physical sensations. And the more curious we get about them, the less identified we are with them. So you have this wonderful app called Unwind and I'm looking at it right now and you can do things like check-in. So I'm checking in and it asks me how I'm feeling. I could put mm-hmm. anxious. How anxious? Scale of one to 10, hit next. And then, you know, you might take me through, okay, so bring your awareness to your thoughts or it might give you a little breathing exercise. So I really highly recommend everyone get this app. And uh, I, I do mean this as a compliment, but one time I, I used it last week when I was feeling anxious and I swear to God, all I had to do was open the app <laughs> and I didn't even end up doing anything because... There's something in my brain that goes, well, there's an app for this. So what you have is normal and you just needed to check in and get out of the default mode you, you talk about. And then I didn't even end up checking in. I just merely opening the app and knowing that there's a name for what I have and was enough for that day. I'm not, yeah. not recommending people don't well, use your that's app. That's great. But, and yeah. that's, you know, we've designed this with the world's worst business model in mind, which is we've designed this Unwinding Anxiety app to help empower people to learn how their minds work and to work with their minds so that they can internalize the training because we're not trying to get them to subscribe for life so we make more money. I'm a a psychiatrist. I want to help people. And so the sooner somebody learns how to work with their mind, the less they actually need it. And like you're saying, just that association is like, oh, I know how to work with my mind. Just having it there can help somebody, you know, once they've learned the tools, and it sounds like you've done a great job with this, they can internalize and use those tools whenever they need them. Yeah, and I noticed it just sort of stopped even the physical sensation. So before we go, may I ask you to do a little a little play with me? It's an improvisational sure. play. And uh, okay, so I want to take someone through what they should do in a panic attack, right? Because And I know that we could have gone on and on about uh, your meditation practice, and, and maybe you'll come back and we'll talk about that. But it's really hard when you're in the middle of a panic attack to suddenly start meditating or, you know, I mean, it's just yeah, not going to happen, absolutely. right? So let's say I'm on an airplane and I'm having a panic attack and you're next to me, you're my coach. And I begin. So here it comes, the sweaty palms, my heart's racing. I'm feeling feelings of unreality. I'm going to die. Oh my God. What do you say to me in that moment to get me to s- try to stop this attack? Yeah, so knowing... So I'm just going to say this. So in my mind, as a neuroscientist, the first thing I'm going to think is this person's having a panic attack. So they're thinking and planning part of their brain is offline. They can't actually utilize their rational brain right now. So we're not going to go there. Okay. So you're sitting next to me and I say, okay, 
pull out your hand. We're going to do this practice called five finger breathing together. You want to do this? Okay, but I can't breathe. I'm short of breath. What do you mean breathing? Oh, I don't want to breathe. So take your index finger of one hand and put it at the outside of the base of your pinky of your other hand. Can you do that? Yes. Okay. I'll do that okay. while the plane's crashing. So as you breathe in, trace up the outside of your pinky and feel what that feels like. Now pause okay. there for a second. Now yeah. as you breathe in, <laughs> trace up the outside of your ring finger. Long, deep breath. Okay. As you breathe out, trace down the inside of your ring finger. Or, and we're going to okay. do one more. As you breathe in, trace up the outside of your middle finger. And as you breathe out, trace down the inside of your middle finger. <sighs> and if we were doing this, we would keep going for five yeah. breaths up to your thumb. And we'd do another five breaths from your thumb back to your pinky. Oh, wow. Yeah. So 10 breaths of forcing your working memory part of your brain to pay attention to four things at once. Okay. Your breathing rate, your fingers, your index finger and your pinky. And then also visual, seeing your hands, okay? Yeah. Those four things, our brains can't hold much more in working memory than four things at once. So if we do that, it does multiple things. One is it forces us to see how quickly we're breathing. And typically when you're tracing up your finger, our breathing starts to slow down already. Typically when we're anxious, we're going to breathe rapidly. So it starts to slow down yeah. our breathing. And at the same time, it's, it's like our brain has a certain amount of working memory. It crowds out the working memory from those anxious thoughts. So those anxious thoughts get booted, right? And when we take 10 breaths, our physiology calms down. And when those thoughts come back on, now there's a mismatch in terms of arousal level. Our body is calmer. Those thoughts come in at a different arousal level and they say, hey, we're supposed to be anxious. And our body says, well, I'm not actually feeling as anxious as I was. So it's easier to be able to watch those thoughts and just name, oh, there's Lisa or whatever, yeah. and let them go rather than get caught up in them. Because if the arousal level is the same for the body and the, the thinking brain, they're going to play off of each yeah. other. And they're just going to be like, I'm anxious. Oh, yeah, I'm really anxious. Oh, now I'm really, you know, and they just go out back and forth with each other. So if your body's calm... Your anxious thoughts come in like a bunch of guys with a six pack and they're like, yeah, let's party. And they open the door to the house and it's some old ladies knitting and they're like, hey, yeah. the party? And she's like, oh, pull up a chair. I've got some yarn. <laughs> let's party. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, listen, I know you have to go go be a, a real doctor here, but I want to thank you for coming on Anxiety Bites and being uh, so informative. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Anxiety Bites. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Dr. Judd Brewer. So I made a list of some of the practical takeaways that we learned today if you want to refresh yourself. So number one, as Dr. Judd said, the only certain thing is that there's always going to be uncertainty. So uncertainty is not something we want to evolve beyond because it helps us survive. Two, it's not just adrenaline that makes us anxious. It's a natural function of our mind to feel fear when the brain doesn't have accurate information. And it's a survival mechanism that helps us learn to avoid danger. Three, worry can feed back and kick in our adrenaline, which makes us more anxious. Four, neuroscience may play a bigger role in helping people with anxiety than going back to childhood in our therapy sessions. Five, Habits are driven through rewards and how rewarding a behavior is. So that's going to drive 100% whether we perpetuate a behavior or not. But by the way, rewards can be disordered and that's where it can get tricky. 
Six, the more you know about how your mind works, the more you'll be able to work with it. I think that was actually seven. I At some point, I've lost count here. <laughs> I'm not going to go back and re-record this. I, I told you this podcast is nothing if not unpretentious. So whatever the next one is, the more quickly we can notice we're anxious, then the more we can get our thinking and planning brain online and get back on track. A habit is just automatic behavior And some are healthy or adaptive, and some are maladaptive, like worry. Worry doesn't help us solve problems. It actually moves us in the opposite direction, as worry makes the brain literally unable to think. There is no scientific evidence to support the notion that anxiety makes us perform better when, in actuality, the peak of performance is when we are in the zone or what's called in flow. And the term flow means we are out of ourselves. It's effortless, selfless, joyful. Anxiety is constricted. Flow is opposite. And lastly, anxiety is thoughts, emotions, and body sensations. But you are not anxiety. Thanks again for listening to Anxiety Bites. We'll see you next week. And remember, anxiety bites, but you're in control. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast, will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. 
Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.